coming up today, Matt Reynolds lays on a COVID Christmas, Amit explains why Netflix is elbowing in on linear TV, and Matt Burgess explores the issue of work burnout. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Vicky Turk, and joining me this week are Amit. Hello. Matt R. Hello. And Matt B. Hello. I'm just going to call you that now. It is quicker, yeah, I understand. This was a week when Elon Musk became the world's second richest person in place of Bill Gates, according to Bloomberg, with a net worth of $140 billion. This is mainly due to Tesla stock. In the top spot is, of course, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos. This is also the week when we said goodbye to the Arecibo telescope, and that's a 305 meter wide dish nestled in the puerto rican jungle it's going to be shut down after two engineering accidents damaged it beyond repair for 57 years arecibo has been instrumental in detecting distant planets and asteroids and in 1974 it beamed a message about humans to a distant star cluster it's also really awesome looking so it's quite sad to say goodbye to the telescope This was also the week when Amazon Web Services, the largest cloud service in the world, went down for several hours, affecting large swathes of the internet. Many companies reported outages, including Glassdoor, Pocket, The Washington Post, Flickr and Adobe Spark. Jeff Jeff Bezos' net worth remained unaffected. And finally, this was the week when the UK introduced its new telecommunications security bill. If passed by politicians in Parliament, the law will give the government new powers that will allow it to ban Huawei's equipment and other equipment from high-risk vendors from our communications networks. Very sad news there, Matt Reynolds, about the Arecibo telescope. R.I.P. Arecibo. Yeah, it is sad. I would definitely, if people aren't familiar with Arecibo, I definitely encourage them to take a look at the pictures because it's just this enormous um, dish in the Puerto Rican jungle, just completely surrounded by jungle. And, it, and it's, it's, yeah, it's really sad. So a couple of cables snapped and basically smashed up all of the dish. So, you know, beyond repair, but it's been incredibly important. So it is it's very sad. RIP Arecibo. Interesting facts this week. I, mean, I, I can't believe this one that you've, you've got here. Tell us it. Yeah, I mean, this definitely wasn't some the result of some last-minute panic Googling five minutes before the podcast. Uh, so I learned that peanut butter can glow in the dark. So if you shine a UV light on peanut butter, it will glow for a few seconds afterwards. Uh, the phenomenon is called delayed fluorescence, or afterglow, and it's caused by light-absorbing natural compounds in the peanut butter called phenols. Can I say, does it count as glowing in the dark, if it only glows in the dark, if you shine a UV light on it. Because I was going to go out, turn the lights off and look at the jar of peanut butter I've got um, on top of the fridge. So I, I'm a bit disappointed. Is that really proper glowing in the dark? Well, well, I would agree with you because it continues to glow after you've turned the UV light off. So to me, that's crucial. Um, so if you were to, if you were to, presumably if you were to leave it out in the sun and then switch the sun off, it would continue to glow because the sun's rays contain UV light, right? Whereas I don't know if it would work with like a light bulb. Let's try and set up that experiment, shall we? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll make some You bring some calls. the toaster, I'll bring the sun extinguisher. <laughs> Matt Reynolds, what have you got for us? 
So I learned that penicillin is, isn't completely broken down in the body. A lot of it comes out in your wee. So for the first few years after penicillin was discovered, production couldn't keep up with demand for the antibiotic. So what doctors used to do was extract the penicillin from the urine of patients and use it to treat other patients. So you could end up being treated by the urine of the person lying next to you in hospital. That's quite amazing and also quite gross. Yeah, it is. But I guess, you know, when something's in, in uh, you know, demand, might as well get the most out of it. I think it's almost inspirational about a kind of a, a closed loop economy there. Do you think this would work for the Moderna vaccine, Matt? <laughs> well, just, just, uh, yeah. You know what? Maybe, I mean, that's another clinical trial you can do for yourself. You've got, you've got a really busy week ahead with sun extinguishing and, and, and vaccine trials. Yeah, I'll get my lab coat out. Um. Don't try that one at home, yeah. Matt Burgess, you've got a, a kind of um, Nordic fact for us this week. I do. I do. It's uh, uh, It doesn't really compete with any of the others we've, we've just had. It's, it's pretty lame, in, in fact. Um, <laughs> this week, I learned that Finland has a population of 5.5 million people. And at the same time, it has more than, in inverted commas, 3 million saunas. So if you were to get, if you were to tell everybody in Finland to go into saunas, you could literally have like one one and a half people per sauna, which is is both impractical and probably messy. This actually doesn't surprise me that much because I think a lot of people have saunas in their homes, don't they? And it's like a huge part of Finnish life for many Finns. Yeah, I think they are mostly, as you say, like lots of uh, small home saunas uh, rather than sort of like big ones around the around the place. So, um, yeah, it is. I mean, that would be quite nice uh, just to have your own sort of like sauna space. But uh, yeah, not a thing here in the UK, really. Not really, no. Um, Well, actually, I've got a fact about Arctic populations as well. Uh, So after Norwegians, the second largest group of people living in the Arctic community of Svalbard is Thai. So Svalbard is quite an unusual place. It's technically under Norwegian sovereignty. Um, It's like an archipelago up in the Arctic Arctic Ocean. Uh, But it's a visa-free zone, meaning that anyone can choose to live or work there. Its total population is under 3,000 people. And after Norway and then Thailand, residents come from Sweden, Russia, Germany, Denmark and the Philippines. That's that's quite a remarkable place. Do you know what people are doing there? Is it? Am I right in thinking this is the same place that has that global seed vault that stores all the world seeds in case uh, species go extinct and things like that? That's the one. Yeah. Um, so historically, there was uh, mining there, coal mining, um, but obviously there's less of that today. And um, there's lots of tourism there now. Um, and uh, most, I mean, most of Svalbard, I think, is very remote. Uh, you know, lots of ice, lots of polar bears, uh, and there's just, uh, you know, one major community where people actually live. I'd like to visit one day, one day when travel is possible again. I'll add it to my long list of, of places I've longed to go this year. Final time before Christmas, we've got a super special subscription offer for podcast listeners. You can get the current issue of Wired magazine for the ludicrously low introductory price of £1. You then get the next six issues for the low, low price of £19. That's more than a year of brilliant Wired journalism for £20. This is a limited time offer and it's only available to people in the UK. If you love the podcast and want to support what we do, then why not give the magazine a try? You won't regret it. Head to wired.uk slash pod sub one that's wired.uk forward slash p-o-d 
S-U-B number one. Our first story this week is something it seems like all anyone can talk about in the UK at the moment, COVID Christmas. Matt Reynolds, what's it going to look like? We've finally got some details. That's right. So we're recording this podcast on Thursday, November the 26th, which means that Christmas is officially now less than a month away. It's obviously going to be quite unlike any Christmas in recent memory or you know, presumably for any anyone really. So what I wanted to do actually, before we kind of get on to the details of what Christmas might look like for us, I wanted to get a sense of what's everyone on the podcast planning? Are you doing a virtual event or are you, uh, you know, meeting in the garden or you've not thought about it at all yet? Amit, what does your Christmas plans look like at the moment? Yeah, I don't, I don't really know, to be honest. I think that I hope to be able to do something relatively, my family isn't that big and it's not like we don't have like a massive number of different households that have to meet to like make make it look relatively normal. So I'm kind of hoping that it's going to be okay to have something approaching a, a normal-ish Christmas. But I mean, to be honest, I think it's going to take me a month to get my head around what the rules actually are and what they mean. So <laughs> you might I might be up late on Christmas Eve still trying to figure it out. Well, hopefully I can clear that up a little bit. Vicky, what about you? Uh, well, I probably won't be seeing my family because they're um, on the other side of the country and sort of in different tiers and things. Um, I know there's, you know, we are potentially allowed to kind of travel and meet other people, but it, it it's not necessarily the best idea. Um, but I think I will be spending it with some of my partner's family who live nearby. So sort of maybe a, a couple households together. That sounds quite similar to mine. Matt Burgess, what about you? What have you got? on the uh, on the agenda yeah i haven't actually made any concrete plans yet but there is a slight spanner in the works in the fact that my partner's brother is getting married on the 19th of uh, december so right before christmas um and uh, weddings are allowed at that point again um however they're limited to 15 people and i actually i actually don't make the cut of the 15 people um which is fine because they've got quite a big like close family and uh actually when you sort of like bring in partners and brothers and sisters and things like that it all adds up very quickly or at least so they tell me um so that's like just before christmas so that's probably going to factor into some of our plans but uh don't really sure not really sure how that is going to sort of like relate to it yet and it's going to be really awkward as well like if you're there nine days later and everyone's talking about the wedding and stuff yeah yeah, that could be quite (laughs) awkward for me um yeah no it'll be fine I say now until we get to that situation and um yeah I, I get everybody's uh what happened at the wedding completely wrong or something like that but no it'll be fine it'll be fine well even though you can't make it to the wedding hopefully you'll be able to make it into someone's christmas bubble so you won't be spending christmas entirely isolated so so this whole this bubble thing is what we heard announced this week in the uk so so this is the relaxation of the coronavirus restrictions over the christmas period and and we'll get into a little bit more detail in a second but in in practice, the idea is that up to three households will be able to meet and mingle with each other between December the 23rd and December the 27th. And these people could come from you know, all across the UK, so any of the, the four nations of the UK, and they can travel from any part, no matter what the tiered restrictions in that specific area 
are and also all the devolved administrations have agreed to this so this is you know one of those few areas of coronavirus restrictions that actually apply uniformly across the UK. This plan has been anticipated for a really long time. There's been a whole bunch of speculation in the press and it's drew some criticism, not least because the restrictions weren't relaxed for other religious festivals such as Diwali or Ramadan, but there are also fears that relaxing the rules will lead to a spike in cases. So what exactly are the new rules? What will we be able to do during this special Christmas period? Right. So, yeah, get, get excited because this is, this is when we find out what, what's allowed. So, as I said just a second ago, these new rules apply between December the 23rd and December the 27th. The main one is that you can form an exclusive Christmas bubble composed of people from no more than three different households. So, for instance, if you and your partner went to your parents' house for Christmas and you were joined by your sister and her children, that would be three households forming a bubble, no matter how many people those households consisted of. So it could be 10 people, it could be fewer than six. Um, none of you will be able to form a bubble with anyone else. So if your, uh, you know, your sister also wants to form a bubble with their mother-in-law, they've got to choose between that family or this family. So it's exclusive. You can't connect two bubbles and create a kind of super bubble of six households. What you also can't do is have anyone else come into the house or visit anyone else house. It's a tiny bit unclear that if you're in a tier one area, you might actually be allowed to do that because that does allow meetings of up to six people in indoor settings. But generally, um, the projection is that not many places will be in tier one areas. I think only the Isle of Wight and, and a few other quite isolated places in the UK. So the general rule is you can't go to someone else's house and no one else that isn't part of those three bubbles can come to your house. Now, you can travel to meet your bubble. So that can be between nations in the UK or between different parts um, of the country. And it doesn't matter if you're going between different tier systems, because as I just said, from December the 2nd, we're going to be going back into this tier systems where regulations vary slightly between different areas. Actually, I should add that if you're traveling from Northern Ireland, you also get the 22nd and the 28th to travel. So you've got a little um, an extended period so the travel doesn't eat into your Christmas time. You can also meet people outside of your bubble as long as it's outside the home, although that again depends on the tier you're in. So if you're in tier three, I think outside meeting is restricted anyway. So the tier, this is kind of um, on top of the tier regulation. So your, your tier will influence some of the meeting you can do as well. I think part of the problem is that like the three households rule, I think, has been quite well publicised. But what I think maybe a lot of people aren't getting is the fact that it is exclusive and that like it, there's kind of a danger that by having this four day window where you, you can only see this bubble, you almost encourage people to well see one group of people on the 24th, one group of people on the 25th, one group of people on the 26th like they would normally. And actually, if they had like a single day where you could mix with your bubble, then it would be much harder for people to inadvertently break the rules or deliberately break the rules i mean this sounds like it's gonna be even if people do stick to these rules which i'm not convinced they will this still sounds like it's gonna be quite a lot of different mixing between households so it seems like it's quite a risky plan 
Yeah, I, mean, I think that's totally right. I mean, this is you know anecdotal going from my own experience, but certainly for me, Christmas involves going to you know one family of my you know my partner's mum, and then my partner's dad's family, and then maybe my partner's stepdad's family. So there's you know straight away there's all this kind of mixing of different groups, and of course you can't expect those people to only you know to be waiting for you to enter your bubble, right? So as you said, Amit, these are people that probably have their own bubbles. So it doesn't really take into the account that I think for a lot of people. Um, Christmas isn't just traveling to one place and staying there for five days. It's often traveling to one place and then everyone goes to the nan's house or everyone goes to the, you know, the uncle's house and different families meet, meet together. So you know, that situation would certainly be more risky. But I mean, even at a core level, is it risky to have multiple households come together um, you know, within one place? In a word, yeah, this does increase the risk of transmitting coronavirus. As soon as you get a bunch of people together and there's a chance that one of those people has coronavirus or more of those people have coronavirus, straight away there is a risk that might be transmitted. So the government's own report outlining, out, outlining what it called its winter COVID plan did say that Christmas will likely lead to an increase in transmissions. But it's fair to note that this report was assuming that a large degree of mixing would happen anyway, no matter what the rules are. So I think a certain degree of this thinking is, well, we think people are going to mix anyway, and we really don't want to tell people that they can't move at all for Christmas. So we'd rather sketch out this, these kind of um, regulations that suggest a more safe place, more safe way people can meet. But I think, you know, on a really basic level, um, you know, people gathering together in enclosed spaces is what coronavirus likes and you know, what encourages the spread of the disease. So fundamentally, yeah, this does increase the risk of transmission. Of course, the fear really is, is that the UK will have only come out of its national lockdown on December the 2nd. And so it's unlikely that cases will be extremely low. If you remember back to the lockdown um, in March, you know, it took us months and months before cases really got down to a low level. You know, I think lockdown came in the end of March or, you know, March the 24th or so. It wasn't until June that we started to see restaurants open. So this is really, really different. We're coming out of a lockdown December 2nd. Restaurants are going to be back open. There's going to be mixing. People will be doing their Christmas shopping. So, you know, we spoke to some epidemiologists and they were saying that they were just frankly worried that the background level of transmission is going to be at a pretty high level anyway when it comes to Christmas. So we spoke to Tim Colburn, who's an epidemiologist at University College London, and he said that encouraging people to mix indoors was a really big risk. And he was worried that cases could be creeping up anyway after the lockdown eases and the Christmas break can only accelerate things, which might lead us in a really, really bad place when it comes to January. And of course, pretty much with every aspect of COVID and, and the response, there are sort of like multiple factors at play. It's not just the impact of uh, what's the risk in, in terms of transmission, but there's also people that are living alone, right? What, what are the other factors here? Yeah, exactly. And I think this is something that you know, is really, really worth mentioning because the lockdown has been really tough, especially, you know, as the days are shorter and it's harder to get outside to, you know, take exercise or whatever. And isolation has a you know, really meaningful impact, particularly on younger people and older people. So some scientists are saying, you know, 
this Christmas um, you know, meeting, this kind of Christmas get-together, should give us a much-needed boost to get us through the winter, which is also going to be really hard. As, you know, typically, if you're thinking about strain on the NHS, it's January and February that are the toughest months of the year. And really, although we've got some really exciting vaccine news, uh, these aren't just around the corner, right? I mean, even the most optimistic plans saying, are saying that we'll be vaccinating most people through spring. So you know, whatever happens, this winter is going to be really, really tough. But there's kind of two different ways to look at this you could say it's really really tough and so we just need to buckle down and you know do what we can and and try to keep transmission as low as possible or you say it's really really tough we understand there's a mental health impact on people we understand that you know this could be depriving people of something that you know they've been looking forward to and is actually a huge highlight in their year and you know might make a really big difference in terms of their mental health and so you know it'll kind of give people this kind of momentum so there's there's two ways to see it and i think it really underscores that yeah it's a really difficult situation it's really easy to say well this increases risk and it's a bad idea but i think that if you're thinking pragmatically um, you know, it's true that actually a lot of people are going to want to do this anyway. So it's, it's, you know, it's a really tricky situation to be in. Yeah. So as you say, you know, I think everyone knows that the very safest thing you could do would be stay home, don't see anyone. But realistically, most people are not going to be willing to completely abstain from seeing family and friends over Christmas. Um, if, you know, if you if you still want to see people within the rules, but you want to be as safe as possible. Is there anything you can do to make meetings a little bit, little bit safer? Yeah, th- there totally is. And I think that this is something that came up from scientists we spoke to, is that maybe one problem with these three household bubbles is that it didn't maybe give people enough practical advice over what they could do to make their household safer. Because, you know, no matter what you're doing, it's good to have, you know, um, you know good to take steps that can make you can minimise your risk no matter what that risk is. So one of the big problems is that large gatherings of people in small, poorly ventilated rooms, especially if people are talking loudly or drinking alcohol, uh, you know, these are perfect environments for spreading the virus. So things that you should be thinking about doing might be opening windows or considering keeping a distance you know, as far as possible. So maybe thinking, oh, usually I'd cram you know, 12 people in this room, maybe saying that let's try and keep it six people in this room and six people in another room so trying to keep some distance um you know in, yeah like i said increasing ventilation by um opening the windows you know another really really simple one is you know if you can spend any time outside and say oh usually i'd invite my neighbors around but how about you know you just have a i don't know an eggnog or like a coffee with them on the front porch or something or maybe you go for a walk with your family you know time spent meeting outside even though it's cold if you can wrap up it's going to be you know really make a difference because it's you know it's being inside it's not you know a great idea one thing that um some of the people we spoke to brought up was saying you know people shouting or singing really loudly is quite a bad idea so maybe you know leave the karaoke for like a different time i'm not sure uh, whether people you know karaoke forms a normal part of people's christmas you know regimes but i guess certainly christmas carols and things so i think it'd possibly be wise to you know cut down on activities that might you know encourage spreading of course other people are going to even greater distances and and people we spoke to suggested, you know, maybe you invite another family by Zoom and you have a TV where everyone opens their presents and, you know, they, they watch you via the screen or perhaps you delay celebrations altogether. You could do it, you know, later in the year. And that's all, also an option. You could say, well, I'm going to do a celebration with my bubble and there's just going to be six of us or seven of us. But later in the year, we'll do something as a big family group and, and maybe that'll incorporate 20 or 30 of us. Because I think the real message here is, is this 
is a tough time, the more we can do to reduce transmission now, the better we are over the, the winter period. And we won't be in this situation again, you know, fingers crossed, unless things go really badly, we won't be in this situation again next year. So any steps we can do to minimise risk in this period should you know, really pay off over the coming months. Excellent. So get your family Zoom pub quizzes ready, I suppose. Exactly. I'm, I'm already uh, coming up with my, uh, my uh, topics. Yeah, get a good, uh, good quiz team name. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's been spending a lot of winter lockdown binge watching new series. Um, Netflix, Amit, is obviously known for its on-demand offerings, but it's increasingly looking a lot more like traditional TV. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, that's right. So back in 2015, Netflix co-founder and CEO Reed Hastings uh, compared traditional linear television programming to using horses as a mode of transport. Hastings predicted that linear television, which is TV as we know it, you know, where networks pick what time and when shows are going to air, would decline every year for the next 20 years, while on-demand TV would increase in popularity. He then went on to list the advantages of, you know, platforms like Netflix. You can watch it whenever you want. You can watch it on any screen. It's customised. It's personalisable. So that sounds like someone who's very much kind of trying to destroy traditional TV and is not really interested in kind of that kind of offering. But fast forward five years to this month, Netflix has just done the exact opposite of everything Hastings said. It's launched Netflix Direct, which is a linear television channel, uh, television channel style uh, offering, which it started rolling out to customers in France earlier this month. So what does Netflix Direct actually look like? How does it differ from the regular Netflix that we all know and love? So basically, you know, when you log into Netflix, it gives you a tile of options for different things to to watch. Um, Netflix Direct is more like a TV channel. So you just um, open it up and it starts playing whatever Netflix has chosen to, to air at that point. So it, it's only available on the computer, not a tablet or phone. And it, it basically starts playing whatever they've chosen like a tv channel would so um you know it's it's got a schedule with you know an episode of wallander at 12 you know an episode of ragnarok at one an episode of something non-scandinavian at two uh, and just like a, a normal tv channel i guess is how you describe it it's hard to go into much more detail than that see i have to say i i don't love it when tech companies do this thing where they're like oh this industry we're going to totally disrupt that and we're going to do something completely different and and they're rubbish and then a few years later they're like oh oh yeah by the way that thing we'll do that as well i think this reminds me a little bit of you know facebook news it obviously really disrupted the news industry and then years later it said well you know maybe we should start publishing news or maybe you should publish on our platform and it it feels like this slightly um insidious way of kind of uh positioning itself so you know was this all part of netflix is master plan or is there a reason why they're doing this now yeah so i mean i think netflix generally loves to like like it's it's really really competitive not only with other streaming platforms like amazon prime or rcv which i think it's fair to say at least in this country they've absolutely destroyed in terms of you know subscriptions and subscriber numbers but it, it it sees itself as competing not only with those things but competing with anything else that you might do of an evening in fact, there's some like shareholder communications that Netflix uh, put out in like 2018 where they saw competition in consumers enjoying a glass of wine with their partner. Netflix saw that as something that they ought to... Genuinely, it's like written in, in, in this kind of official Netflix document. They saw that as something that they needed to compete with. So 
I mean, I guess we've, we've all been in that situation where you, you don't really know what to watch. So you end up kind of watching nothing or like just watching like friends repeats or whatever, where you kind of have like decision fatigue and you can't pick between the hundreds of you know prestige shows on offer. So you just end up sticking the TV on and just watching whatever happens to be on. And I think Netflix sees that as competition and is trying to capture some of that market. So they've presented it as a remedy for exactly those moments when you can't decide what to watch. Um, and it, so we've spoken to some people about this um, and, you know, they say it's like a logical next step. So first Netflix started providing existing content through its own catalogue. Then it started producing its own content and now it's becoming a television programmer. So it's not only just about providing access to the content, but also managing when you watch it, how you watch it and what you watch. Now, this has some benefits for the platform. It enables Netflix to directly kind of curate what viewers are watching. So it already has tools and mechanisms by which it can push particular shows that it wants to do well. You know, it can kind of put them at the front of the the thing when you log in and it can kind of play trailers for them and stuff like that, try and encourage more people to watch them. Um, so having a linear offering kind of enables it to more directly use it as a promotional tool for underperforming content. It can, you know, line up loads of episodes on direct so people are going to get drawn into these new shows and like hooked into them, hopefully, and then go on to watch them on their own time on the on-demand platform. So that's one um, particular kind of benefit um, the other benefit is kind of around event TV. So, you know, over the last few weeks in the UK, we've seen the Great British Bake Off, which is a, you know, a weekly show and a weekly time slot on a traditional television network. And, and Netflix can't really compete with that at the moment. But, you know, it could be that they're trying to kind of create a platform where they, whereby they can create these kind of event television shows where, you know, the show will be airing at this time on this channel and you know yeah you can watch it then and kind of create an event around it and if you don't want to watch it then you can watch it on catch up in a more traditional way but it's just about broadening its offering really and as you mentioned sort of at the top of the segment like it's currently being trialed in france at the moment is this something that we can sort of expect to see rolling out globally or is it more something that uh netflix is uh, to be quite cynical uh done for france in particular yeah, so I wouldn't necessarily expect it to be launching in the UK anytime soon. Although, I mean, I think it's quite a it's a relatively straightforward thing for them to do. It's not like like if you look at the the TV guide in inverted commas of of Netflix Direct, it's basically five episodes of one thing and then five episodes of another thing and then five episodes of another thing. So they've not put a massive amount of kind of thought into what they're actually airing at the moment. So it wouldn't be difficult for them to roll it out more widely. Um, but there are some unique circumstances that make it particularly suited to France. So France still has a really unusually popular linear television market. So during the kind of country's successive lockdowns, audience numbers rose by 35% compared to the year before, whereas in other places it's been much more kind of divided between TV and streaming platforms. Um, so it could be a kind of a way for Netflix to try and bring some of those people on board, people in France who still don't have a scream, uh, streaming subscription to kind of get them on board via a, a medium i guess that they're more familiar with there are also kind of regulatory benefits which are unique to france so if netflix direct was classified as a television channel it could be included in kind of television bundles which would again allow netflix to kind of reach a previously untapped corner of the market um it would also give it better access to um film rights so um there are rules in france around when when films that have released in cinemas can come out on, on television and when they can come out on streaming. So that would cut their the time they have to wait from 36 months to 22 months for kind of the latest films and TV shows. Um, sorry, just the latest films. And finally, there's new legislation coming in that would require Netflix and other streaming platforms to invest between 20 and 25% of their revenue 
into French and European cinema production. Again, kind of traditional TV channels don't have to pay as much, so this could be one reason that if Netflix can get, get itself classified as a kind of traditional TV company, then it might not necessarily have to pay as much back into the system. So France is very protective, like in a, in a regulatory sense, of, it, of its cinema industry and its TV industry. And so there are kind of unique circumstances in France that mean launching a TV channel makes sense for Netflix. So we might not be seeing it in the UK anytime soon. But well, I mean, would you guys watch a linear Netflix TV channel, do you think? Is that something that you feel is missing from your viewing experience? Honestly, I would say probably not. And that's not just because of the shows that Amit listed. I was like, I don't know what any of these shows are. So these are, these are probably not for me. I feel that if I'm wanting to watch a linear TV series, you know, there's already a TV channel. There's already iPlayer. There's already whatever Channel 4 On Demand and ITV Player. Like, I feel like I'm more likely to go to different places rather than just see Netflix's own content in a different format. For me, it's a problem about content rather than delivery so i'm not entirely certain it it satisfies that problem for me to, to matt's point I, th I think what i would watch is as a linear tv channel but the one that was curated to me you know what i mean so kind of a mixture of the two so it takes what i've watched on netflix and then just shows me stuff that it knows i like maybe from series that i've watched before or you know, series that are similar to things I've watched before. I mean, I, I, in my case, it would just be like 800 Simpsons episodes in a row, but like, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I know that I can just stick on this kind of TV channel and there will be something that I like on there and I can just kind of mindlessly watch it while scrolling through my phone. I think the problem with Netflix at the moment is that it's quite, the shows are really good, which is great, but it means that they're, they're shows that you kind of have to pay attention to and like you, you don't, you don't just put them on in the background. So that means there's a decision about is do I want to watch this show right now? And if there was a, a service where you could just stick something on and it, you know, it'd be something you liked, then that would be, I would use that. Yeah. That, that, that to me sounds like a quite a good idea in terms of having like that. Um, yeah. Just the option to turn something on and know that you can just watch something idly for 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever, while dinner cooks or something like that um, without thinking about it. And just the idea of sort of like flicking onto a, a sort of a Netflix channel um, at some point And it's in the middle of like five shows in a row. Um, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like if, if, if you just like, yeah, join on episode three of a new series, uh, saw a load of what was going on and then like huh, do i go back to the beginning and start watching this none of this makes any sense i don't know the characters um i feel like you have to be quite invested in it from the beginning maybe Th that is a good point but then that's what tv was like for for decades right you know you know what i mean that that's just that's the way it was and i guess we've all been used to we've been spoiled in a way by being able to catch everything from minute one to, to the end but you know back in the day that was how you found new tv shows you channel hopped and you found something and it was halfway through and you were like oh this looks interesting and then you kind of tuned in the same time next week to see if it was on again. And, and that's that's how it was. Maybe that's how it will be again. Back in the dark ages. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm the same as you, as you um, Matt. I think I might use it for those moments when you don't, you're not like sitting down specifically to watch a show, but you kind of just want to put something on for a while. Um, 
And, you know, with Netflix at the moment, there's so much on there that I often spend, you know, I could spend 15 or 20 minutes just flicking through different things, trying to choose what to watch. So maybe in that situation, it would be good. Um, But yeah, no, we'll see if if this spreads beyond France. Let us know what you think. Do you think this is a service that you would ever use or is it a step backwards? Podcast at wired.co.uk. Let us know if you're in France as well. Have you had experience of this? What do you make of it? Our third story this week feels very relevant at the moment. It's getting towards the end of a very long year. It's been tough for everyone. Um, And it's had an impact on lots of people's mental health at home and in the workplace. We've all had to adjust. Matt Burgess, you've been looking into work burnout. Yeah, so obviously we are now um, more than the best part of a year into um, into the pandemic and for lots of people in jobs that is possible to do so, uh, people are working from home still. Um, and I think a lot of companies, uh, particularly maybe more in the US, have sort of set about uh, sort of work from home policies until uh, sort of like at least the sort of uh, second quarter next year maybe even a little bit later and uh, with the first lockdown and particularly in the uk we saw uh, a big proliferation of uh, work virtual work drinks and group yoga classes and lots of uh, basically sort of what we probably thought at the time were, were sort of quite temporary measures to uh, sort of deal with some of the uh, some of the change to working remotely and working from home and obviously that saw a lot of things uh, such as sort of like spontaneous work lunches and uh, the little chats that you have with colleagues and sort of uh, gossiping and uh, that sort of thing disappear really and sort of uh, a lot of those types of mechanisms uh, for people act as sort of stress relievers and uh, basically sort of ways of breaking up the day which has obviously very much changed now that we're all uh, sort of working remotely um, and in, in England here we're sort of as we mentioned coming to the end of uh, second national lockdown and uh, people are still going to be working from home for quite a while um, and this has obviously led to sort of like issues around burnout and people's sort of like workplace stress situations increasing so um, now that everything is sort of like merged in into one um, companies are slowly starting to sort of like come around to sort of the idea of uh, helping uh, employees to better handle men- uh, mental health issues and sort of like putting in place mechanisms to do so um, and to, to begin with I think it's like uh, the idea of burnout is something that is quite uh, sort of debated widely within sort of like scientific communities and sort of the the space of it's not really clearly defined uh but sort of generally sort of interpretations and people that we spoke to have have uh, said it's 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 beyond stress in, in a lot of cases it's a state of sort of exhaustion um and sort of when the uh, term burnout in terms of like work-related stress was initially sort of like uh, come up with back in the 1970s uh, it was very much sort of like to be sort of like that step beyond sort of like uh, just pure stress and the impact of it so um really we know one of the key things is that we know that it can have quite a, a strong impact on people and sort of uh, really uh, be damaging in terms of mental health and productivity and lots of other areas of life um so just for one example sort of in a pre-covid study uh, a, a couple of years ago a Chinese firm sent 500 of its employees to work from home for nine months and although they saw a boost in productivity uh, towards the end of the uh, that period when they were sort of like re-evaluating this uh, basically lots of people wanted to return to the office and sort of uh, didn't see the ben- complete benefits from the experiment and many people reported feelings of isolation which I think is very much what we found during the pandemic over the last few months. 
you mentioned kind of you know yoga classes and other things companies have been doing you know virtual work drinks and all the kind of things that we we all tried i think during this during the first couple of months of the pandemic but what have companies been doing more recently to try and stop their employees from from experiencing this kind of burnout thing that you described yeah, so um, we've spoken to, in the piece that uh, we published this week, spoken to quite a few different companies about their efforts, and um, some of them go a long way beyond the sort of uh, things we were talking about there. Some of them are still sort of at that level, but uh, we have now have a little bit of a better idea, I guess, of what people respond to a bit. Um, so at one one extreme uh, end of the spectrum, uh, one Texan video company called One Day, um, their CEO was basically working remotely in, in some sort of like uh, very idyllic location, and uh, basically for it would be good if other people could get a benefit of sort of working maybe not in cities or not quite where they're where they're normally based and the company is now uh, offering people um, the option uh, so four employees each month are given the option to go and work in from an Airbnb in the US depending if it's possible on their lockdown conditions and sort of yeah given that option to go work somewhere slightly different that's paid for by the company um, and basically as a is there as a mechanism to help people who might be struggling working from home during sort of the the long sort of periods uh, in the UK um, there are companies that are doing sort of more creative less uh, probably expensive things uh, to make sure company uh, to make sure employees are sort of given benefits so uh, one company uh, is is doing sort of like uh, drop in zoom coffee slots uh, and allowing people to conduct meetings while walking if video is not required uh, so they can uh, just dial into meetings and go for a walk uh, as part of like a, an official meeting um, there's a few other companies trialing that sort of thing uh, sort of some of them called it wellness walks and things like that um, so uh, Nominet, which is the domain registry in the UK, uh, during the first uh, lockdown here, supplied its uh, workers with home office setups, um, and this time around it's sending employees care packages uh, ahead of Christmas. Uh, other companies have been doing this as well, sending uh, people food parcels um, and just sort of basically trying to make meetings that are being held virtually a little bit better. Um, so one other company, uh, energy firm Centrica, has offered employees 10 days of leave for those with caregiving responsibilities, which is uh, probably a bit of an outlier, but obviously a very good thing to be doing. Um, and sort of other bigger companies are also sort of seeing uh, sort of like trying to introduce people to other members of uh, teams and people that they might not normally interact with by setting up groups and things around sort of interests. So if people are interested in ballet or football, uh, they would sort of group people together for chats and basically to sort of like organize meetups with people uh, just to have social conversations. So this is all great. And it's a really good example of how companies have responded to this pandemic in a creative way and, and thinking about you know, different ways they can support their employees. Now, not to be too cynical here, but I'm wondering if perhaps those examples that you're using represent the minority of businesses and other ones are struggling to get back to business as usual and, and maybe aren't um, thinking so much about these extra things. So I, I guess the question that leads me towards is where does this leave us? You know, are people supported enough? You know, do we still have problems we need to fix? It, basically, has this been enough or is lockdown still proving a challenge that's difficult to solve? Yeah, I think as a, as as you say, a lot of those examples uh, that I just sort of. Uh, uh went through there are probably the sort of more uh, outlier cases the things that companies being quite um, forward thinking and quite responsive to employee needs those are the sorts of companies doing those things at the moment particularly when it's uh, sort of uh, 
sending people packages and things like that which obviously come at expenses of the company itself um so i imagine that there's a lot of companies not really doing much or not doing anything really um so i think that it's sort of really highlighted that um there is still a lot that needs to be done in this sort of space so um i think that this time around i think it would be fair to say that for companies that haven't necessarily uh, implemented anything or made a, a huge amount of changes um, there probably should be a little bit of sort of uh, inward looking for from bosses and, and teams that are set up for uh, managing people and stuff like that because we sort of we knew that there were going to be uh, different waves very early on um, and I think it's uh, companies probably could have prepared a bit better and, and sort of like thought a lot more ahead in terms of what they can do for their staff. Um, and there's obviously been several months of this now, but there is obviously still time to sort of change as we go forward. Like with the vaccine news, although it is obviously very positive, as we've said, there is lots of, uh, there's still going to be uh, for, for countries in the Northern Hemisphere, a winter that is very sort of long and, and difficult to go through and lots of working from home remotely still. So there's a lot of things that people can still do to improve this. And I think that, I mean, a lot of it all comes back to sort of the underlying question of um are these things that are being added are they actually sort of helping people and staff or are there bigger sort of more endemic issues with people's workloads overall and sort of the amount of stuff that people have to do in daily daily jobs and so there's probably a, an element of some of these things that have been implemented are still not doing enough but there's probably things that bosses and companies should be able to look at themselves and sort of readdress, readdress their situations really to i think uh yeah see if people are struggling or not so if there's anyone listening who's maybe in a management role, maybe looks after a team or just wants to look out for their colleagues, are there, are there, any, are there any signs that you can use to see, you know, if people might be struggling? Like what, what, what might be a bit of a kind of signal that maybe you want to think of, of something to lift the mood or lighten the workload for a bit? There are definitely a few things that people can do, and we sort of list a few of these in the um, uh, article, which is linked in the show notes. But just to, to briefly summarise, so uh, we spoke to some advisors at the Advisory uh, Conciliation and Arbitration Service, uh, ACAS, um, and they listed that some of the sort of tell time, telltale signs that employees might be struggling are uh, if people are sort of uh, logging in um, sort of later on to meetings or or, or not necessarily being online or, or accessible that easily. Uh, if people aren't taking enough leave, they might not be, uh, they might be signs that there could be something that is potentially wrong there or somebody needs a little bit of extra support. Uh, but even just on video calls and things like that, if people are not put, willing to put their camera on, um, they found that it can be a sign of either uh, more stress on, on that somebody is suffering with or sort of other mental health issues. So it could just be a sort of repeated sign of uh, maybe it's worth checking in with somebody and according to some studies as well uh, it's quite often people those who are under 25 uh, who are not been particularly keen to return to workplaces uh, have sort of suffered with these issues as well so uh, yeah there are a few things that people can can do uh, if there if there may be sort of uh, signs to show that people might be struggling so um yeah i just i just wanted to end it as well on, on a question on just uh, just reflecting on ourselves to do you think that there's been any uh, aspects of, of any of your work that sort of like changed or the way that you work that changed because of this sort of like prolonged period uh, of working from home? I definitely think it's um, it's maybe harder to take a moment to yourself. Like you mentioned earlier, things like those water cooler moments, um, just taking like an informal break with colleagues or having some off topic chat. Um, I feel like when I'm working from home, because you're kind of, you're 
disciplining yourself to do the work, you don't factor in any breaks. And if I if I do get distracted, I feel like that's a really bad thing. Like, oh, I've wasted time. Whereas if I was in the office and we just started having an off topic conversation, even if it had nothing to do with work, I wouldn't count that as wasting time. I'd count that as part of the work day. Um, and I think it is hard to kind of replicate that because, you know, if you try and do sort of organized fun, it still feels like a scheduled part of the work day. It's, it's difficult to, to strike that balance, but it is really important to have those moments just to sort of like turn your brain off from what you're doing for a second and take a breather. Yeah, definitely, Matt. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, what, what Vicky just said. I, I've found that I've had to make a real effort to say, OK, I'm going to go out for lunch between one and two, or I'm going to go for a run or something, because otherwise the time kind of gets swallowed up. And, and before, it's really easy to think and sit here and think, well, why would I go out for a walk? There's nothing really out there. It's not like I'm in the office and I can go and get lunch or something. Everything I need is here. I've found that I've had to be much more d- disciplined with being, you know, with saying, no, you need to go out, you know, for half an hour or whatever, you know, have a walk. Um, but actually that discipline possibly is hopefully a good habit that I could take through the rest of my, you know, when we kind of get back to normal and, and kind of being a little bit more disciplined where it's like, no, I'll actually work for these 20 minutes and then after that, fine, you can go make a coffee or something. So I've found myself having to be a lot more disciplined with my time, but hopefully that, you know, means that I'm being better when I actually am working. Damn it. Yeah, I think I've been quite bad at doing that kind of stuff Matt that you talked about but then I was I was always bad at doing that stuff even when we were in the office about making sure I like went more than two minutes away for lunch and things like that or you know actually taking a lunch break um what I found really difficult I I think it is those those spontaneous conversations that Vicky talked about are really important I think when you're working in a creative industry and I think a lot of ideas you don't really realize it but a lot of your ideas kind of come from just like overhearing two other people talking about something or you know something you saw on the commute to work or something you know, you know things like that and there's just no um there's just a much less input i guess into you know we only talk on scheduled meetings and there's just you just see less stuff right and even if you do go for a walk every day it's generally like one of three walks right <laughs> one loop another loop or like get to the shops and back so i think i found that quite difficult and i'm looking forward to kind of that returning i think yeah, I think that for, for me, what exercise has been a, a key thing in terms of like when I found that I am struggling, just like getting outside, either walking or running or whatever, and doing something that is, uh, yeah, just gets you moving a little bit is something that is like really made a benefit for me. And actually, just like before, quite often nowadays, before we, we record the podcast, we end up just having like a five, 10, 15 minute chat, just like spontaneously as everybody's setting up equipment and stuff. And it, it can be quite like, uh, just like, you're not working in that time or you're not doing anything sort of productive so it's a bit of a like a relief in a way so uh yeah even just small things i think can make a difference uh for me let us know if you found any really good ways to kind of emulate that nice friendly work environment at home i feel like we're still in the experimental phase of working from home even though we've been doing it for quite a while now if you've got solutions podcast at wired.co.uk we'd love to hear them maybe we'll even try some out ourselves We've got some feedback from previous episodes. First of all, Josie writes in. Yeah, so Josie wrote in about uh, the launch of a new Amazon 
uh, product which is called Amazon Sidewalk. Uh, so Josie received an email uh, in the UK uh, saying that this service was launching uh, when actually uh, Amazon later admitted that this email was sent by mistake and it was only meant to go to UK uh, to US customers. But uh, the Sidewalk thing is something that they sort of like first talked about in 2019 and basically it's a uh, low bandwidth network which connects uh, sort of Amazon Echoes and um, other and some some of the ring doorbell cameras uh, to each other sort of in a in a wider sort of like mesh network to basically um, sort of create uh, sort of like greater sort of stability in, in connections and uh, there's also the idea uh, that Amazon will in, in the future or very near future uh, roll out some tile tags which are basically like uh, wireless tags that help you sort of um, locate items that are connected to that network and Josie said that uh, couldn't this sort of functionality uh be used uh as as a type of stalkerware and, and relating back to a conversation that we had recently on the podcast and be abused by a stalker to track a human uh wouldn't it be easy to hire something small like a tile in somebody's bag uh and this can obviously be used across sort of like a mile radius on this system um and yeah i think that it, i think it's a very valid point um uh, about sort of how this type of technology is used and and how we sort of like think of these types of uh technologies which can sort of the doorbells and things can help to reduce crime and and things like that but they also have sort of a a normalizing effect of um surveillance generally on people and sort of like altering people's behavior by just being present so i think it's a really uh, yeah really interesting point to bring up josie and yeah um there are probably sort of like we should definitely think about how we use these types of technologies as they uh develop and uh, are rolled out on the subject of security issues, uh, Amit Dara wrote in about a story we had on the podcast last week about sharing uh, passwords and sharing access to accounts and also new gaming consoles. Thanks for writing in, Dara. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so Vicky, you talked about why you shouldn't share your password with your partner. Dara wrote in to say that he has done the exact opposite. His wife has access to his phone. Her fingerprint is one of the registered ones on his phone. So she has access to his password manager and everything else. They share a joint bank account. He says the truth is that your shared accounts are only as strong as the weakest person using them, which is uh, food for thought if you are one of the millions of people that that share their Netflix password or anything else with, with their friends and family. He also mentioned consoles. So yeah, I spoke about the new console generation, PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X and S, which launched recently. We were pondering whether we thought this would be the last console generation before things moved towards a cloud gaming platform where processing is done online. Um, he points out that, you know, while you know, he's, he's in Ireland where they have very good internet access and a plan to move to, to fibre countrywide, but, you know, other countries aren't as lucky. So in the US, there's terrible access, crippling bandwidth caps, and no signs of that changing anytime soon. So he says that a a move to kind of cloud-based consoles would be devastating for the US market. So he doesn't see a move towards cloud-based gaming or the death of the console just yet. Thanks very much for writing in. And Matt Reynolds, we've got a final letter from Kenya, from Michael in Kenya. That's right. Yeah. As you said, this is from Michael, who wrote in about our story when we were talking about how the continent of Africa is responding to the coronavirus pandemic. And as you said, Michael's in Kenya and he had a couple of points about the response in 
in that country that I thought were really, really interesting. So one of the points he raises are that you know, a lot of these countries don't have basic infrastructure for testing and confirming test results in, you know, in time. And so he uses the example of the county that he lives in, in Kenya, and says there's you know, fewer than 50 coronavirus testing points around that can- county. But then all of those test tubes have to be transported to Nairobi, the Kenyan capital, for results to be determined. And actually, earlier on in the pandemic, there's a time where Burundi and Uganda were airlifting coronavirus tests back to Kenya for results to be determined and that meant they could take one or two weeks. It also raises a couple other points in saying that actually Kenya although it lacks hospital infrastructure has quite a sophisticated and, and effective um, home care system that's you know, played a really good role in you know, helping people through coronavirus and keeping them healthy at home. And the, the last point which is you know, we didn't really get onto the political implications of the, of the pandemic but it's been a really really good point. He says you know, democracy in Africa is also taking a hit and he talks about you know, the Ugandan general elections and how the president has used this as a you know an ability to kind of clamp down uh, use this opportunity to clamp down on political opponents and he's saying you know we need to be looking at this because in Africa although perhaps we've not seen the deaths that you might expect in the rest of the world you know the impact of coronavirus isn't just in terms of healthcare there's an impact on democracy there's an impact on you know other parts of people's lives so you know great to get the perspective from someone that um that lives in Kenya. So thanks for writing in, Michael. Thanks for writing in, Michael. Yeah, we love hearing uh, your stories and your experiences from around the world. So if you want to share something, do let us know at podcast at wired.co.uk. We read out as many as we can each week. That's it from us today. We'll be back again next week. But for now, goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.